Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Solved, the sustainable business podcast. I'm Will Richardson. Many of us dream of shaking up the existing capitalistic consumer model, creating products that last with sustainable supply chains, minimal impact on the planet, and a positive contribution to the people involved. But is the business model in itself sustainable? Over the last few years, Shelley Lawson and Rob Webben have both been on a journey to build sustainable businesses in their respective parts of the cycling industry. Rob's journey hit a stumbling block earlier this year when the founding team of Preska Sportswear made the difficult decision to close the business. Whilst Shelley's company, Frog Bikes, that she founded with her husband Jerry, continues to grow. Today, both of them are joining me to talk about the challenges and lessons learned on the journey to be a sustainable business. Rob, if I may start with you, where are you right now? Could you tell us a bit about the journey you've been on, please? Morning, Will. Yeah, so well, we're in a position right now where we've run essentially a closing down sale and we're kind of working out what next steps. But having actually genuinely got the business to the best place we've ever been in, team-wise, product-wise, in terms of impact and community size as well, late last summer, we were feeling very buoyant and feeling great. And then, well, we all know what happened, cost of living crisis, consumer confidence disappeared overnight and that was coupled with a double whammy and specifically in I suppose the the clothing sector but it'd be interesting to hear from Shelley as well in the hardware sector of the cycling industry where everyone was sitting on so much stock that suddenly there's a glut of stock people of course aren't able to pay full prices because you know we've all got our worries about what's going on and and so you know it was it was really a kind of a perfect storm for us so yeah having been you know six nine months ago feeling wow we're going to make this now through to today where we yeah we've just run a closing down sale and it was wildly successful but you know that was probably because of the pricing as much else and if i may ask how are you feeling now uh, do you know what, well, i'm i'm fine now i'm fine it's been a journey for sure i would say i've been through the grief cycle and back a number of times i mean <laughs> in the run-up to christmas it was feeling like oh this this is not going too great. You know, Christmas was, was, was not as strong as it should have been by any stretch. Mm. And so, so that was difficult. Early January, very tough. And, you know, I'm not afraid to admit it. It's, it's okay now to say that, you know, mm. mental health and struggles are a thing. And, and I certainly had that for a little while, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm good now. I'm, I'm good. solid. I'm, I'm, I feel bittersweet because like I say, mm. the sale was so successful. We had so many people come out to say, I can't believe you're going. I've only just found you and I can't believe you're going. You're, you're the best thing to slice bread. <laughs> you know, we had some lovely messages from the industry and from our existing community, which has, has certainly helped ease yeah. the pain. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. And Shelley, where is Frog Spikes at now? Well, we've just celebrated our 10th birthday. So we've been through all sorts of cycles in the, in the first, excuse the pun, in the first <laughs> 10 years. Um, some periods of very high growth. And then I guess the last three years have just been characterised by continual global shocks that are well outside our control, like every business. So still kind of rolling with it. And we enjoyed pretty strong, pretty steady growth for the first few years, sort of hockey stick style growth at the beginning. And then during the pandemic, of course, everybody wanted bikes. So the roads were nice and quiet. People had time. Everyone was desperate to get their kids off their screens. We couldn't sell bikes fast enough, couldn't make bikes fast enough. Mm. And that led to a general shortage of componentry for our whole industry. So none of us could make 
as many bikes as people wanted to buy. And all of our lovely bike stores switched to refurbishing old bikes because people were finding rusty old things in the shed and going, can you turn this back into a bike? So people could get out. So the industry kind of enjoyed that for a while. And since then, we've been able to get our hands on all the stock that we need, kind of coinciding with consumer confidence taking a hit. So exactly as Rob said, we found a lot of our stores started to buy a lot of stock as soon as it became available and were not shifting it as fast as they'd anticipated. So the industry enjoyed a huge peak, kind of 2021, and then a slump last year. And I guess we were all just clinging on at the moment to say, how long is this slump going to last? What are we going to do about it? How can we all be as lean and as nimble as possible to ride this out? And which sections of which market are going to recover quicker? How can we capitalise on any opportunities that might be out there? So okay. it's, it, we're, we're still learning every bit as fast as we were 10 years ago. I'd say it's, it's just different challenges all the time. I'd say that's almost every business because that mm. resonates with me as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you tell us, both of you, a, a bit about your target customer and the role that has played in the outcome of both businesses? Yeah, so, so, so for us, I mean, I, I think it's a really important question. Our target customer is a very environmentally engaged, sustainability-minded, predominantly 25 to 45-ish, but we have plenty of people at either end of the scale who are equally engaged. And they love their sports. They're, they're not diet-in-the-wall cyclists, must go and ride 200 miles at the weekend, but they, they love being outdoors on their bikes or running. And, you know, I think the, the common thread for everyone is genuinely looking for the most sustainable kit they can find, which is amazing. Our community is so great so supportive it does mean that they're not the type of person who will just go and buy more and more stuff and they shouldn't and the, the society shouldn't so we encourage that but then it does mean that you know everyone's stocked up during the pandemic or immediately after that so everyone's got kit now and they don't need more and they're saying well we love Presca so much but yeah we don't need more stuff now so i think that has kind of been a, a third factor if i'm totally honest those people who might still be able to pay the prices are just like well I don't need more and we wouldn't necessarily encourage them just to buy for the sake of buying. So I think our natural consumer is the kind of person that we want to encourage in society in general, but that makes it difficult for a sustainable business. <laughs> mm. And Shelley, what about you? Um, so our, our target market is reasonably young families. So anybody with a child between about 18 months and about 15 years. When we first started and when we first go into new countries, our kind of early adopters are the really sporty families where the adults have probably got some quite decent bikes of their own and want their kids to have a good lightweight bike where they'll make great progress and they'll learn to enjoy cycling as well. But as we kind of mature in each market, we become more mass market. And actually, you don't need to be a, an expert cyclist to recognise that giving your child a really heavy piece of machinery that's kind of made out of scaffolding poles and they can't reach the brake levers and, you know, it's a, really almost a dysfunctional product is going to lead to lots of tears, lots of unhappy family bike rides and probably lead to it just being left in the shed. Mm. So increasingly we, we just talk to a wide range of families who just want their kids to get outside and be active, which is, which is almost every family. We've also, in the last few years, we've developed a big customer base amongst people like the city councils. So Cardiff is an example, they're just down the road from our factory in Wales. They've bought thousands of our bikes to put in all of their primary schools alongside funding for cycle coaching and cycle maintenance. So that's been a fantastic way to begin to transform a whole community to, to take more daily sustainable activities better for 
everybody's health, better for city congestion, better for air quality, better for mental health. And it's fascinating to see that the councils, even, even with this current funding squeeze, they're finding the money for things like cycling because they see what a massive long-term benefit it is. So that's been a really interesting slight pivot in our business to, to talk to some of those big corporate customers as well. Mm. Okay. And employing people in sustainability, I'm acutely aware that we're not paid huge amounts of money. We're not, you know, this isn't an industry that you go into to earn megabucks. And therefore, do you think there's a danger that sustainable products appeal to sustainability professionals who sometimes themselves don't have a lot of cash to spare? Because we do know that sustainable products do cost more because they last longer. Uh, from our perspective, yes. I mean, just, just by way of context, our fabrics sourced in, in Italy from recycled materials. I could get the same fabric from, let's say, China for a quarter of the price. Or I could get a virgin fabric from, you know, just virgin polyester from crude oil for an eighth or a tenth of the price per meter. Labour, far more expensive, European labour, lovely family-owned factory, renewably powered. There's cost upon cost upon cost. So the costs to make a lot are a lot higher, but the quality is, is fantastic. And, and we really have always focused on longevity and, and making sure that our kit will last as long as possible. So yes, 100%, that there are people who just can't buy um, quote unquote sustainable products because you know there is you know, a price barrier to entry on, on clothing specifically. But what I would say is if for people who can afford it, then actually the kind of the false economy of buying cheap mm is it well it is a false economy and actually if you buy well buy once then you really are buying products that will last for a long time and so you need to spend a lot less in you know on on buying and rebuying and rebuying again Mm. i'd echo that absolutely robin in the sense that a well-made bike whether it's for a kid or an adult but particularly kids who grow out of their bikes long before they've worn them out a good quality bike will hold its value you'll get back probably 60 70 percent or more of what you paid for it and because people know that they will last through many lifetimes of kids if they're well looked after. A well-made bike really lasts through siblings, cousins, friends, second-hand market, whatever. I would also say that some of the things that we've done to make our bikes more sustainable in terms of the, you know, reducing the emissions from the embedded materials, we first started looking at improving the designs of the bikes so that we used less material in each bike. So as an example, we challenged our R&D team to look at the spoke pattern in our wheels. And just by rethinking how the wheels are laced, we've taken eight stainless steel spokes out of every wheel and they are just as robust. They go through the same ISO testing that we've always done. So that makes the bike, obviously there's less emissions associated if you can take out some stainless steel. But from our point of view, it makes it quicker to build each wheel and it makes it a lighter bike, which is everything that we're trying to achieve for kids and therefore reduces the cost of making it to some extent. We're seeing the same thing in our switch towards recycled aluminium. So we're putting pressure on our Far Eastern suppliers who make our frames at the moment to say, can we move towards recycled aluminium, post-consumer recycled aluminium? And we hit a lot of resistance initially, even to the point where they said, oh, you can't recycle aluminium. (laughs) We said, hang on a minute, fairly sure you can. So it took a lot of, really a couple of years of continuous badgering and and showing them why it was possible. And a few months ago, we got our first part recycled frame through as as a prototype for us to test. And not only did it actually surpass our previous 
safety testing, which is amazing. It's a slightly stronger frame than our original, not what we expected, but it's also slightly cheaper as well. It's about $2 per frame cheaper, probably because they're using a lot less energy to process it because you don't need to get to the same high temperatures when you're recycling aluminium as, as to create aluminium the first time. So for us, we're in a, kind of on a different journey to Rob because we didn't start trying to source the most sustainable materials at all. Hands up, we really didn't do that. That's something we've come to as we've grown, as the scale of the business has grown. Jerry and I have become more determined that we reduce our footprint because just the quantity of materials that go through our hands, we, we make about 50,000 bikes a year. So that's a lot of aluminium and rubber and stainless steel and cardboard boxes and so on. So we have, we're trying to migrate our bikes to become less emittive in the way that they're built as well as designing them so that they are more long-lasting, which makes them both better value for consumers and much better for the planet. Amazing. If they can be used many times over. Can I just jump in there? I mean, isn't that the, the mark of a great designer, someone who can take stuff out of the design and still end up with the, a brilliant product, as opposed to just putting more stuff in, more frilly stuff? And then the other thing it was just reminded me of, I, I was lucky enough to go to Nepal a long time ago, and there was a family sitting beside the road there, and they were literally collecting aluminium cans. They were melting them on a little crucible over a stove, you know, with a little set of bellows, and then they were casting them into forks, spoons, and, and you know, just cutlery and crockery and various different things i love the kind of education side of things and how very simple messaging can actually be extremely impactful and i was there thinking that's a perfect example of of aluminium recycling isn't it you know that literally people doing it beside a street i mean health and safety wise not brilliant but i did think there's a lot of people that could learn from that in terms of oh wow this is this is easy mm-hmm. or seeing a plastic bottle going into a thread it's actually n- not complex yeah. but very impactful yeah and because of um, that intuitiveness or ingenuity that you possibly see more so in sustainable designed products, I think I could see that from talking to for a long time with Rob about how he built Presca up and what they how they did the materials and talking to you as well, Shelley, about putting everything together. There is an ingenuity there. Is it harder for a, or easier for a sustainable business to get financial backing? Rob? Um, I think it's increasingly easier. We actually got, we've got two private individuals who are kind of our main backers, American guys, who took a punt on us because they love cycling. They, they kind of have invested in the past in the clothing industry. And this was a little while back. And, and so, so they've been brilliant and massively supportive. And I think at the time we discussed going for B Corp, you know, early in early days, we went, we talked about B Corp and, and the kind of the sentiment then was, well, look guys, you've got an awful lot to do. And is this going to be, you know, is this going to be a benefit for you in the long run? I think actually in hindsight, yes, of course. We had that same discussion a year ago and they were said, yes, absolutely all over it. There's a lot of information that shows that, that sustainably minded businesses are more investable in the long run. I mean, the clothing industry is a funny one in itself. It's just, it's a very tough industry. Mm. So that will always pull up its its own challenges. But I do think increasingly there's the whole impact investing side of things. And, you know, that desire from financial houses is towards investing in sustainable businesses. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd agree with that as well, Robert. I think in terms of the kind of the more traditional sources of funding, so various bank loans, all the high street banks now claim to have green loans, green financing available. I think that's reasonably accessible if you're doing some quite straightforward decarbonisation. So if you want to put solar panels on your factory, 
if you want to essentially anything that, that reduces your scope to emissions I think the banks are, are ready and willing to lend that because that's probably got quite predictable payback periods and they're quite short now energy is so expensive so that's quite easy to do but as all of us start looking beyond our scope two into our much more difficult to tackle scope three honestly I think the banks lack imagination there it doesn't fit their standard business models but I completely agree with what Rob was saying about private investors so we're just about to launch a crowdfunding campaign at the moment. First time we've done this at Frog. Jerry and I still wholly own the business, so it's quite a departure for us bringing some other people on board. It's quite exciting. And it's really interesting how many of them want to hear about our sustainability. That's mm. definitely a driving factor. So, you know, the more imaginative investor and the more creative sources of finance, I think they're all over this. And recognise that it might be a different risk profile. It might, might have a longer payback. And the results are maybe not immediately measurable financially but in terms of consumer engagement customer loyalty and honestly i think longer term supply chain resilience as well because none of us want to go through what we had 18 months 24 months ago where globally we were all reliant on one particular supply chain which was creaking our supply chains are too long too fragmented we need to shorten our supply chains dramatically and that will give us so much more resilience Mm. And that's, that counts for a lot in, in you know, volatile times. And Shelley, on the crowdfunding route, why crowdfunding? And also, why are you raising money? Yeah, crowdfunding, because we want to accelerate our, our growth in some of the big European markets like France and Germany, where we've been fairly small for a number of years. We've not had the resources to really go out with a lot of sales and marketing power into those markets. They're both a lot bigger than the UK market. They're really well developed in terms of, of kids cycling. The infrastructure is great. The appetite is there for good quality kids' bikes. So we want to be able to invest more in those markets to grow them. Equally true in the US. Again, we've been in the US about four or five years and we just need a bit more firepower than we've been able to afford up till now to make the most of those markets. So that's pretty exciting. But also in terms of, of moving into sustainable aluminium, because our frame manufacturers are not used to working with recycled aluminium, they've required that we buy billets of recycled aluminium, which normally we don't pay for them until they're made into frames. They need us to buy the actual raw aluminium that they will then turn into frames and give back to us, which is an, a bit of a, a bit of a, just a cash flow nightmare because normally we, we don't have to pay for the materials so far up the supply chain. Mm. Again, it'll wash through pretty quickly, but just there'll be that, a little bump in terms yeah. of working capital yeah. while we migrate to that. That makes sense. And going into the supply chain, with manufacturing in the UK, if we could talk about the supply chain, what impact did COVID and the grounding of Ever Given in 2021 had on your business? And what are the lessons learned from that? And just as a side note, for those that don't know, the Ever Given is the biggest transport ship in the world. Um, the Ever Given is the same ship that launched a thousand memes when it got stuck across the Suez Canal on March the 23rd and held up nearly $60 billion of trade. And it took weeks of tugs, dredging and salvage experts to free the 220,000 tonne megaship. Yeah, so from our perspective, it, directly, there was very little impact. Some of our components sometimes come from China, but most are sourced 
from Europe. So there was no point where, you know, our factories, our mills were saying, we just can't get the zips, we can't get the, the yarn we need. But the indirect impact was other companies couldn't from their usual sources. So they were looking for different sources, which happened to be our sources. So we did find that there was a bit of a knock-on impact. And, and we certainly found that that, also the pandemic, of course, you know, we would normally be at, let's say, a month turnaround time for knitting new fabrics. And it was up to four months. I would say more, actually, from the pandemic, mm. uh, just because of factory closes, as opposed to um, from the Ever Given. But, yeah, I know it was a okay. hell of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it affected us directly because a lot of bike componentry comes from the Far East. So we buy from people like Shimano and Tektro. And we'd, the uh, whole way through COVID, with a lot of Chinese factory and port closures and peculiar patterns of consumer purchasing. Essentially, all the containers were already in the wrong part of the world before that happened. So shipping prices went from what would normally be about $2,000 a container to get a a 40-footer from China to the UK, it had gone up to between fifteen and $18,000 a container wow. for exactly the same amount of goods, and it was taking longer. So that's a, that's a shocking thing to have to try and absorb before the Suez Canal got blocked. So as soon as that happened, everything was delayed by many more weeks, and of course the shipping containers are, are pretty tightly managed, and ships docking and, and, and departing again is, is a well-oiled machine. That was just carnage for weeks. Mm. So a real nightmare at a time when, as I, as I said earlier, a time when demand has never been higher. We were all desperate to make as much product as we could. It just mm. wasn't possible. So there were times when we had our factory team sitting idle. They, they couldn't make bikes at a yeah. time when we'd never seen so much demand. So crazy. We learned a lot about supply chain, didn't we, during didn't that we? period and the risk involved with different supply chains. And so if you were trying to build a sustainable business is an ethical supply chain by its very nature slower and more expensive? No, I don't think so. Good. I don't I don't see why it should be. No. Yeah. And as I said if you can source a little bit smarter, especially in very energy intensive materials like aluminium in our case, but a number of others, then no you can actually take some of the costs out of it. I don't see why people working in decent conditions costs more than people who are working in unsafe conditions where there'll be high levels of absenteeism, there'll be a lot of inefficiencies, and quite apart from all the reputational risks, etc. Um, mm. It's absolutely worth the investment in that, of course. Mm. Yeah, I would say slower, no, not necessarily. I, I would say, again, in the clothing industry, yes, it is more expensive. Because I suppose if you look at the kind of the worst of our competitors, chasing the cheap dollar, literally you know finding the cheapest factories in any part of the world with zero regard for the externalities you know how, how people are treated how the environment is treated then you can lose a lot of cost in there mm. you know not that we ever even considered taking that route but i think in clothing specifically where you don't necessarily have those big wins in terms of you know we can save on fabrics that say because they're recycled actually recycled fabrics are more expensive frustratingly because it's such a labor intensive process compared to just oil from a well refine it ship it out as quick as you can so yeah sadly it's quite a lot more expensive but you know as as with shelly why why wouldn't we we, we need to mm. as someone said the other day if you can't pay people to look after their families then of course they're not going to look after the local environment because it, you know that's not their primary concern so social and environmental goes hand in hand Having spoken to both of you in depth about the different products that you both sell 
if I could call them products. You've both really, really thought about the environmental implications. Minutest details, just so that um, listeners know, and Shelley, you know, I was cycling with Rob and asking him question after question about what it was that they did and how they did it, because I, I wanted to find out if they actually practice what they preached, and they absolutely did. They really, really do. And so I am just curious to know how that fits in, that whole life cycle analysis and everything fits in with supply chain and your thoughts around it. It's deeply embedded in Frog's culture and all the decisions that we make. It's conversation we have on a daily basis uh, about the, the measurable impact that we have on the environment. And therefore, every team with any spending power whatsoever is absolutely empowered to make the right decision. So we rely pretty heavily on the R&D team in terms of design improvements, but equally the buying team. And we've had some interesting sourcing successes recently. So our pedals, for example, used to be plastic, as most pedals are. They're now 50% plastic and 50% rice husk because we had a fascinating conversation with a guy from Taiwan that takes the waste material from the rice growing industry. It's just the, the husk, a cellulose husk. But when it's processed, it behaves exactly like rigid plastic. So we've been able to blend rice husk with plastic to make pedals that now only have pretty much half the carbon footprint of our original pedals. So you never know what you're going to stumble across and what's going to be around Mm -hmm. the corner in terms of novel materials. I think we are increasingly seeing, as an industry, we're working together. We're all trying to solve the same problems with very much the same materials, at least in, in bike manufacture. And all of us are fairly small and not, and not big enough to do it on our own. But we're all largely talking to the same kind of suppliers. So we, we tend to, to work quite constructively together, sharing what's good practice, sharing our frustrations and working together. So particularly across Europe, there's some great initiatives. There's one called Shift Cycling, where I think 80 of us now, 80 brands have signed a, an open letter to all of our suppliers to say we require materials that have a lower carbon footprint to halve our emissions by 2030 and and get to net zero by 2050. And because each of us individually is going out with exactly the same message and the same kind of skills and and techniques to our suppliers, that's why we're going from that whole stonewalling, you can't recycle aluminium, to much more constructive discussions. And that's fantastic for our team because they can come to work and know that they're making a positive impact on the environment. We always say whatever you do at home, whatever good practices you have in terms of you know, how you travel, how you recycle, how you heat your home, when you come to work you can have a much bigger impact on the planet just because of the scale and we're not the biggest business out there but we really encourage people to, to feel that they can make a big difference. And that open letter with lots of organisations talking to their manufacturers, offsetting is contentious But the reason why I'm bringing it in is lots of organisations do put money into offsetting and it's scientifically, for the most part, unproven. Mm -hmm. But what we do see is by greening up, making the supply chain more sustainable, is that something you're seeing? So because it's all very well for us as a British company to go factory in China, please can you be more sustainable, but they can't afford it. So what we're seeing with our larger companies is they're actually putting money back into the supply chain to green up those said factories. Is that something you're seeing? I haven't seen anything in the bike industry like that yet. People like IKEA are helping to fund some of their 
They're smaller suppliers, aren't they, so they can invest in, in renewables. Honestly, I haven't seen that yet in the bike industry, but I have seen some quicker wins where all of us put pressure on our shared suppliers to take unnecessary plastic out of their packaging. So that's all of our inbound goods being shipped around the world. Saddles used to all come in a plastic bag. They didn't need to come in a plastic bag. And it wasn't until all of us wrote to our suppliers jointly. This is, it's a, a, again, a, a Conobi is the European bike industry group. All of us uh, committed to reducing unnecessary plastic in the supply chain by 2025. And we're very close to it now. So it's smaller steps like that, but it proves that there is quite substantial widespread demand. And when suppliers keep hearing that, then they're going to be a bit more proactive. And because we're all asking them now, well, what energy are you using and what conditions are your workers working in? And you, you know, pro provide us with evidence and measures on all of these things. Of course, that accelerates the rate of change. Okay. So, yeah, I, I, there's so many things in there that, that I'd love to get into but we haven't got an hour or two for me just to talk so um, <laughs> honestly it's so exciting all this stuff shift is a brilliant organization mm -hmm. we're part of shift as well i agree with shelly that the way that the industry the cycling industry and wider industries have the biggest impact is through collaboration and i think in the sustainability space and, and those conversations there's much less competition there's much less kind of looking over your shoulder competitive advantage as opposed to guys we just all have to do the right thing here and because like you say Shelley, a lot of companies just use the same factories there's not many factories that make frames you know th that's where you can have real impact coming back to the the lca side of things yeah that's kind of just critical for us really when we started the business we we've always only used recycled fibers for, for every fiber that we could use recycled we have done and that's not to say that's the end game but it was a very good way of of having lower embodied energy and lower resource use in our garments so we knew that from the outset we did the lcas later on I suppose the challenge for Presca has always been because we've set out from that position, then those kind of quick wins of, let's say, transitioning from a virgin fibre through to recycled, which can knock off the emissions by, say, 40, 50% of your garment, they weren't there for us. And, you know, we certainly haven't ever been, unfortunately, the company that has deep enough pockets to be able to do that in setting that you talked about, Will, with mm. the supply chain. I think there's something in there which is interesting, and, and it's something I'm starting to hear a little bit about, which is brands working with impact investors, you know, normally the bigger financial houses, to tune them up with the supply chain to say, okay, so we've got this amazing factory, a dye house, let's say, because they use a load of energy. Actually, there's a business case for sure there for putting solar on the roof, for getting as much of that energy um, generated on site as possible. Now, if that factory aren't able to do it, just from a funds point of view, then connecting the dots between all the people that we know throughout various mm -hmm. different parts of, of industry and business, I think there is a way that, you know, bigger change can happen there throughout the supply chain but i would also say in terms of that lca side of things it's a really important tool it's not perfect by any sense and there's so many different lca standards even in the clothing industry so it's slightly confusing it's a really important tool for a business if they are using one specific standard to be able to identify right, this is a bad area this is a good area like, let's focus on on the, on the worst areas but then also things like the packaging discussion was really interesting we umdenard so long about how we package our clothing and eventually we moved from virgin plastics the poly bags 180 billion poly bags made every single year we transitioned to compostable bags made from potato starch on the face of things absolutely the right thing to do you know it's a very strong message for our community and everyone loved it but actually it was then when we had the the lca data 
they actually use more energy to produce those things. There's more impact to produce them. We looked at soluble plastic bags that, that you can essentially pour hot water on and they disappear. But it was eight times as much energy, embodied energy, as a, as a standard poly bag. So we were like, oh, God, you know, where's the right choice here? In the end, we had a packaging expert come to us, or actually a waste expert come to us and said, the best thing you can do is 100% post-consumer recycled plastic, essentially, because it's got yeah. the lowest embodied energy, it's the most recyclable, you know, all these various different elements. So the decisions that we all make for the right reasons need to be backed up by, I suppose, that data, which, you know, LCA is, is very, very important. Yeah. That's really important. I think that's a really important point. You see this all the time with people wanting now to have a paper bag instead of a plastic bag. Yeah. And you're just like, really? It's worse for the environment and you can only use it once. Brilliant. <laughs> for the most part. And there's a, there's a real concern about how much consumers understand all this because it's complicated. As you, as you mm. said, Robert, it took you guys a long time to work out what the best option was. I can completely understand why consumers make assumptions, perfectly perfectly reasonable assumptions, unless they're experts on this stuff. Labelling is so hit and miss at the moment, isn't it? There's no standards. It's not like you know, nutritional labelling where we all pretty much trust what it says on our packets of biscuits. There's nothing like that in terms of impact labelling. And I think until there is, it's quite difficult for consumers to know what to get behind. Yeah. As a small business, how easy is it to look into your life cycle analysis and the footprint of the products that you're selling is it an easy journey is there help out there for you i think there are improving tools all the time but when we started doing this there weren't there's plenty of tools that are great for scope 2 and energy usage but inevitably for most manufacturers scope 3 and our supply chains are where the vast quantity of emissions are for us it's more than 95% of our emissions are from our materials and logistics and honestly, when we started doing it, there weren't great tools out there unless I was willing to spend a lot of money, which I wasn't. So instead, I built a kind of Heath Robinson spreadsheet. And we started by just looking at all of our SKUs and calculating what weight of each material went into each bike. So how much is rubber, aluminium, stainless steel, steel and cardboard packaging. And the mileage, approximate mileage that each item travels into us and each bike travels out to the customer. And that kind of gave us all the raw data we needed. It wasn't immediately available. I didn't have a neat report from our ERP system, but it wasn't impossible to get it internally. And then we applied emissions factors that were publicly available. So none of our suppliers, when we first asked them, were able to say, oh, yes, you know, for a, a bottom bracket that we make in Germany, this is the emissions you need to apply. Nobody had that. But I could get publicly available from people like the Aluminium Federation in our case. If I could say our aluminium comes from this region in China, then we can guess that it'll be processed using coal-fired power, sadly. And therefore, for every kilogram of aluminium we use, the emissions would be about 17 kilograms of carbon dioxide, which is horrific, oh, wow. really, Gosh. truly horrific. So we were quite quickly able to make a, a profile of each bike, and it was very obvious what our hotspots are. And that data was not 100% accurate, but it was close enough to say, OK, we, need, we know where we need to focus, clearly. And I'd suggest that's probably true for any manufacturer. Just get started. Use whatever data you can access. Don't pay people to do this for you because it's not impossible. It didn't take huge amounts of time, and it was fascinating learning it. And play this back to your suppliers saying, well, we think the emissions are this. If you've got better data, please give it to us. So keep challenging them on it as well, and that will 
continuously improve. I think over the years, I expect we'll have better data to play with. Anyway, that gave us a focus, and as I said, aluminium was, was our clear focus, and we know that recycled aluminium, the footprint can be as low as four kilograms per kilogram of aluminium as opposed to 17. So that's what we're absolutely focused on, using less aluminium in every bike and improving the supply chain. And eventually, potentially even greenshoring it, getting aluminium made in the UK, recycled aluminium, using hydroelectric power and doing all of that close to home so we can, long term, properly close the loop and take back old bikes that have got to the end of their useful life, break them down and put them back into our supply chain. And we can only do that when that's local. So that's okay. the holy grail. That's when we'll, we, we will get closer to net zero. That's exciting. Yeah, brilliant. that's, that's, that's properly game changing. Mm. Yeah. And I don't think we'll be able to do that on our own as frog bikes. I think we will be really, we'll be <laughs> collaborating with yeah. a lot of other manufacturers by that stage, but it's yeah. not impossible. No. You'll have really made it if you own your own aluminium smelter, Shelley. <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure I want to. I want to, I want to be a welder. <laughs> I can't see it. But there's people like Hydro and Constellium. There are hmm. renewable aluminium companies in the UK already, using generally yeah. using hydroelectric power. Cool. They don't yet make bike frames, but they're talking to us. <laughs> <laughs> and Rob, how easy was it for you to learn and to adapt? Um, I'm really inspired by your approach, actually, Shelley. So I kind of came actually from a background of, of doing some LCA work and carbon accounting and kind of consultancy back in the day. So it was something I always wanted us to do. But for the kind of the clothing side of things, we really struggled to find any suitable emissions factors that I felt confident in. Uh, and I guess that's because there's so many manufacturers of polyester, there's so many different processes involved and depending on what process is used and, you know, for the finishing and dyeing and all these various things. It was a bloody minefield, if I'm totally honest. And like you say, the options were there to, to go to a specialist LCA firm in, this, in the clothing space. And back in the day, that could have been 15 or 20K to do your LCA for one garment, you know. And of course, I mean, the beauty of a, a proper LCA is not just emissions. It focuses on resources and, and water and eutrophication, all the, the wider impact. But I think climate is a really important place to start right now. So were we able to do LCAs in the, in the old days? No. Since then, there's been some good tools emerging. There's one called the Higgin Index, which is set up by Patagonia and others with a view to making that LCA data widely available. And it's got some real flaws. It's certainly not perfect. And there's been some rulings recently by competitions marketing authorities who, who have said you can't use HIG data to market your products. You can't say our polyester t-shirt is 50% better than one from this shop because we've used the HIG data. It's not for that. It's used as a tool to inform your mm. business decisions. But then increasingly, there's more and more companies on the, on the market now. There's a great one we've been working with called Compare Ethics, who they take all the various different range of emissions factors, the databases, not just in clothing, but other industries as well. And they will then crunch all the numbers on your behalf for, for each of your products and spit out essentially the, the emissions data for each of your products is based on the locate geographic locations, which is something that HIG doesn't really do well, all the mileage that's involved in transporting, how you transport. So they crunch a lot of data to give you, essentially for a kind of monthly subscription, to give you an LCA output for all of your garments. So it's way, way cheaper than getting a proper full in-depth LCA and much more accessible. So yeah, I would say the tools and the companies out there doing it are getting better and better. It's still a journey to go through, and it's it's unless you have someone incredible like Shelley doing it for you in in house, it, it can be quite a, <laughs> quite a challenge to go through it. Yeah. Okay. 
And I think because the data is still best endeavours and, and estimates for all of us, we're not confident in carbon labelling yet. Mm-hmm. Because you know, I would be happy to put a, a carbon label on each bike, but I know our competitors could come along and put kind of any number they like yeah. because we yeah. haven't got one agreed methodology or one third yeah. party authority that would validate what we're all doing. Yeah. And that's a shame. We kind of need that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Shelley, frog bikes made a conscious decision to work with cycling shops and not sell online. Why was that important to you? Partly because of the service. So when you buy a bike, you need to be confident that it's going to fit your child properly. So the idea that you can take your child to a store, get them measured by somebody who knows about bikes, order the right bike, and then that the bike will be properly built, tested, the brakes will work, everything's screwed up tightly. Even people who think they know bikes when they get a box of bits and have to turn them into a bike on Christmas Eve, which has happened, it's not as straightforward as you think. It's not as safe. So we made a conscious decision from the point of view of consumer experience to go through bike stores. We also like to support high street bike stores. They are experts in what they do. It's amazing how often you need them as a distress purchase if something's you know, suddenly gone wrong, you've <laughs> run out of inner tubes again. The bike stores are are really important and it, it, I know it's swimming against the tide in terms of high streets but look at what happened during Covid. They were allowed to stay open as essential retailers which is fascinating. Thank God they were, it was brilliant for everybody. <laughs> Not only for selling bikes but for maintaining bikes, for getting key mm. workers to work without having to use public transport. It was really quite a strong resurgence, quite a strong message to bike stores I think. So we always try to avoid selling bikes online unless you don't live anywhere near a bike store because convenience is a factor and if we sell if any of our bike stores sell online we require that the bike is fully built and pdi tested before it's dispatched Um, but our our preference is that customers get to try it out before they buy it and rob in contrast you sold entirely online not entirely we have been in a few smaller independent cycling shops right i think Honestly, the margin was our struggle there. Mm. And I totally agree with Shelley. Bike shops are a critical part of our high street. Most bike shops that we spoke to were saying, we don't really make much money from clothes. And mm. we have our two or three standard brands that you know people know of and want to buy. So thanks, but no thanks. So we really came up against a bit of a brick wall there. But yeah, it's certainly in the early days, it was the margin that, that stopped mm. us really taking that route. And I guess if somebody buys a garment that's the wrong size, it's reasonably easy to post it back to you if they've bought a kid's bike that isn't quite the right size. <laughs> and, and it's always going to be the kid's birthday that day. True, true, um, true, true. Then you've got a bigger problem on your hands. Oh, it's yeah. quite hard. And we yeah. bought a bike for the kids online, secondhand on eBay, mm. and then didn't read the small print that they said they weren't going to send it to us. So, oh. yeah, we had to get a friend to go and pick. It was a logistical nightmare. We were like, <laughs> oh, man, it's all very well buying secondhand. <laughs> Um, now Prescott offered clothing repair and frog bikes offers warranties and MOTs for second hand bikes do you think you're almost and I'm alluding to some of the things you've worded on your website Rob you're shooting yourself in the foot by making your products last so long um yeah look if we wanted but, but if we wanted to build the most highly profitable biggest margin we could then we would have done things very different from the outset if i'm totally honest i think Presco is for sure the type of business that the future needs and really we can't carry on business as usual but it, <laughs> that kind of messaging around 
you don't need to buy this. Well, it worked very well for Patagonia, didn't it? It was their mm. most successful ever marketing <laughs> marketing tool. But but there is something really important in there. I think for us, it was really around. We wanted to work out can repair actually be a kind of a critical part of the business. And two reasons, I suppose, we did the repair side of things or we offered it one because we just genuinely felt it was the right thing to do and secondly also because it was a way for us to find new customers who wouldn't have found out about Presca we launched the first chamois pad replacement service in the UK no other company's doing it so your bib shorts your cycling shorts with the pad in them when they run out it's, it's quite often the pad's the first thing to go you know the seams will rip in the pad or the foam will go funky and it just flat as a pancake so a lot of things get thrown away there now we never actually had to replace a single chamois pad in a Presca pair of shorts but we had every other brand people coming to us to say oh can you just replace the pad because I love these shorts they're my favorite ones but I can't use them anymore so it was a brilliant way for us because it was kind of industry first and and that kind of thing a really good marketing tool but it was a brilliant way for us to keep products in use for a lot longer but then also to find people that wouldn't have found out about us before and because Mm. the quality of the repairs was so high a lot of those people I can't remember it was 60 or 70 percent or something turned into Presca customers so it wasn't wholly altruistic. Mm. I think that's the only way that repair can be, let's say, a profitable part of a business is through actually the impact on the, the kind of the longer customer journey with you. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a probably a similar story for us. The, the fact that our bikes last a long time and are easily repaired, they're made of standard gauge equipment as well, and our bike stalls have access to all of our spares. So it makes it very easy to keep them in, in really good condition in the long term. That helps support the original sale price because our, you know you can buy cheaper kids bikes for sure our bikes start at 250 quid and if a family wants to do that a they want confidence that it's going to be very long lasting but also that it that they can get their money back when they've grown mm. out of it so that's an important kind of initial selling point but just as rob said in terms of customer acquisition as well supporting our bike stores to sell second hand a lot of them offer trade-ins as the child inevitably grows they will do a trade-in for the next size up and then they will use their mechanics and all the spares and and touch-up paint to refurbish used bikes and sell them again. And that will bring customers who might not normally walk into a bike store into the store or onto their website. And particularly at the moment when customers are are that much more squeezed for cash, people who are really uncomfortable buying a a new bike for a child, again, they don't know if they're going to love cycling in six months' time or if they're going to suddenly have a growth spurt. So the Mm. access to a a reconditioned second-hand bike is, is perfect and makes sense for our stores and they bring, it brings in footfall who people they may not have met before. And while they're in there, oh, I might just pick up, you know, some lights for my bike or let's just have a look at those adult bikes and they can turn them into customers as well. So I think it works all around. You're both passionate about cycling and we know that bikes are really important for our health, communities and greener future. What would you like to see done to encourage more people to cycle? Um, I'm going to go back to Cardiff Council. I love the approach that a reasonably local authority can have where they can influence the infrastructure on the roads, the signage, the usage of all the roads, the parking bays, all of that. That's within their gift. And they can work with all their local schools to get cycling on the curriculum and to give them all the resources they need, whether it's space or cycle trainers or even a lock-up to put the bikes in, and just encourage everybody from a kind of societal aspect through to financial incentives to really change behaviour. And if your particular school is discouraging driving and encouraging cycling, 
and has put everything in place to make it easier to do, then that makes really quite profound change which will benefit the area for years and decades to come. And I love that. And it's, you know, of course we'd all love our government to do more and of course we all look to other countries who we think have done it much better and much faster. And if I had a magic wand, of course that's what we'd want to do. But it's, it's interesting to see that at a slightly more local level, there are organisations who are wholeheartedly supporting cycling because, as I said earlier, it ticks so many boxes in terms of health, the efficiency of cities and, and how everybody moves around, air quality, which is horrendous in, in lots of areas. So we'd like to see more of that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. For me, it's kind of at the macro level, I think it was it was Holland, wasn't it? it had very high road deaths and they realised that we need to get people out of their cars. They They put huge amount of resources into into the messaging and marketing around very kind of guerrilla campaigns around you know get out of your car cycling is best to do that in the uk we're so constrained by the infrastructure i I live in bristol which is meant to be kind of you know one of the best cycling cities in the uk some parts are brilliant and the council have done an awful lot but there are some areas where they're so constrained by these tiny kind of victorian streets they've inherited that actually it's really really difficult to do unless they make some huge sweeping changes to kind of infrastructure and, and road layout then it will always be a challenge i think at, at that level at the kind of the, the micro community level it's not much of a surprise is it that a lot of cyclists are male pale and stale and certainly the kind of the, those of us getting out in our lycra at the weekends it's very um homogenous sport at that level and i think that's really where community groups organizations whether that's you know women's only cycling groups there's some of those in brilliant ones in bristol whether it's groups like black riders association who are led by an amazing guy called temi who is so positive and so powerful and getting people from from backgrounds who just wouldn't get on bikes normally saying oh it's all right to sit in lycra and go cycling at the weekends and they wouldn't in the past because they wouldn't have seen a face like theirs there so you know it's it there's so much power in those kind of community groups yeah i think that's probably where the change happens quickest but the greatest change needs to happen at that macro level and that's a Mm. big big deal i read something recently about the one of the things that triggered all of those changes in holland and I, it, it takes a brave government to do this but there was a law change which meant if there was any kind of collision between a cyclist and a driver it was always the driver's fault no questions asked and that meant that drivers immediately wanted to be physically separated from cyclists they didn't want to be oh, wow. within a hundred yards of them yeah. so all of the barriers we have at the moment it's we're so tribal between drivers and, and cyclists mm. even though there's a good overlap between them a big brave law change like that mm. actually enables some huge infrastructure changes because suddenly yeah it's okay to have a street that's only for cyclists because i don't want to be driving anywhere near them now so maybe it takes some big picture thinking yeah i don't think we're there anyway let's not. <laughs> so <laughs> finally what have you learned and what has been your biggest learnings along the way shelley ah so much that the benefits to the business have come quicker than we expected i think We started looking at sustainability because we wanted to on a really personal level. We wanted to minimise our impact as our business grew and didn't expect it would immediately improve the business and immediately improve the quality of the product, the the weight of the bikes, the way that we design the bikes, the way the bikes last and improve our supply chain as well. And really importantly, improve the motivation of our team because when they feel that they're doing something impactful, it's definitely helped us 
in terms of our existing staff, but also recruiting younger staff. It's a bit of a cliche about millennials, but they do want to work in places that have strong values and where they will have an impact. Mm -hmm. So we're not only doing it because it's the right thing to do and we're you know, willing to sacrifice things on the way. It's actually already strengthened the business by doing the things we're doing. And we're, we are by no means at the end of the journey and no means perfect, but we are actually seeing improvements. And I'd say across our whole stakeholder base, from suppliers through to the bank, people are pleased that we're doing it. Mm. So don't be shy of getting started, even if you haven't got all the answers yet. Yeah, perfect. And Rob, what about you? Oh, Slightly um, loaded question I in some way. A, well, I've had a flood of things coming to me there. I mean, I think you're right, Shelley. The most important thing is just start doing it. You know, really, there's so many people coming to us have said, oh, you guys are way ahead of us. Like, you know, it's it's too much. We don't even know where to start. Well, actually, just start doing something. I think understanding your impact at whatever level you can, whether that's a full in-depth LCA or just we've kind of run these numbers, but we now know that aluminium is the, the biggest issue, is such a positive way to start. The team thing, I would completely agree with Shelley. I think you can't beat having a good team. Like You're not a business without a good team. And we had some amazing people in our team who, let's be honest, could have got a lot more pay elsewhere. Um, but they loved Presco and still do. And I bloody love them as well, you know. Oh, starting to feel a bit emotional. <laughs> I think, you know, that, that people do believe if, you, if you're doing it from the right place, mm. even if you're making mistakes, and God knows we made so many, people buy into that, whether that's your community or your team. So uh, that is hugely Im impactful. And I, I suppose the last thing, I've learned how bad the industry is, <laughs> how much it needs to improve. Mm. When you say industry... Do you mean fashion or cycling? Fashion, sadly, cycling as well. I think okay. you know it's seen as a green mode of transport. It is a green mode of transport, but I think a lot of people who do it are not that way inclined at all. And that's probably coming back to the pale male and stale guys mm. that go out at the weekend, of which I am one. <laughs> but I've learned how much I don't know and how much is still a challenge and that we didn't get right. You know, I've been doing this for years as a kind of professional background and then five years full-time in Presca. Even then, I still feel and felt like proper imposter. Ah, oh, you know, I don't necessarily have the uh, the ability to tell people about this stuff. And and so many people have come out of the world and say, "You guys were killing it. You were the the leading light in clothing in the industry. I can't believe you're gone." Kind of thing. Mm. So, yeah, I suppose I've learned. Oh, do you know what? Actually, we were doing all right. <laughs> mm. On that, have you got any plans of what you're going to do next? Yeah. Um. Well, I've got super super lucky. I've bumped into some guys who actually were in our next door office to us who are a marine renewables engineering company and they've asked me to to support them two and a half days a week mostly in kind of biz dev they're really interested in getting into offshore wind and Shelley you were talking about you know renewable or, or recycled aluminium from hydropower but also the offshore wind industry is huge and if we can build out as we need to then there's going to be so much energy there for things like decarbonizing aluminium steel concrete transport heating all these various things so so that's great that keeps the wall at the door and i'm i'm really excited by it and then i've got two and a half days really to work out okay what next and i, I have learned quite a lot and i feel like i can offer quite a lot to to businesses who are going through what we try to go through or who are mm. just at the start of the journey and feel like where do I even start so I'm going to be looking up setting up some 
consultancy work to essentially yeah pass on those important lessons that i've learned and what i'd really like to do is do that in the community as well so something for business mm-hmm. and then also something for community groups who probably wouldn't necessarily be able to get that support on you know climate education or, or you know all these various different areas so i feel really excited actually i feel you know good, gutted good. that this stage is ending but yeah. also wow so much positives and Shelley, what about you next with Frog Bikes? You've talked about venturing into the US and European markets. Yes, exactly. So that's that's kind of the focus of the, the crowdfunding at the moment. So it'll be about ramping up our team so we've got more resource and talking to people in those markets. So that would be exciting, whilst also accelerating everything that we want to do with our supply chain. So that's pretty exciting as well. And on a personal level, I'm also carving out time outside Frog to talk to other businesses that are trying to do the same kind of thing. There's huge appetite there. Everybody's keen to get started. Everybody's worried that they don't know what they're doing. And we're all in the same boat. So I think it's, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lot to be said for sharing you know, the highs yeah. and the lows and, and all trying to make it happen as, as quickly as possible because yeah. there is no time to waste here. There's, yeah. Yeah. Last year, we saw the impact of climate change in a way that nobody could anymore ignore. So we, we all have a huge responsibility to get moving mm. on this quicker i've even been speaking to school groups and believe it or not last week my mother's wi is the the oldest (laughs) audience i've ever confronted and they were amazingly engaged it was really interesting (laughs) tough crowd but wow it's interesting to see across different generations what people's priorities are and and how engaged everybody is i think that learnings from each other is so important we're partnering with organisations using Compay Footprint in Australia and New Zealand at the moment. And one of the things that I'm trying to get is I want to get to a place where all of us consultancies around the world are learning from each other because crowdsourcing understanding and ideas, and you've both alluded to it through this podcast and just now, we can learn from each other and that will accelerate change. But how do we do that? What, you know, what are the platforms that are out there that we can do that with? And what does that partnership look like? I don't know, but I'm forming collaborations and ideas around that because I think it's so important that because let's say, for example, Australian companies will be doing something one way and we can go, oh, that's a really weird way to do it. But that would work really well as well because cultural differences drive change differently in different cultures and society. Rob, if I may ask you just a few questions about Preska and the thought process around closing it down. Mm. And I I guess, first of all, what did it feel like to close the business? Um, Oh, I should say, it's not dead yet. (laughs) We're kind of looking at, is there there a future? Oh, good. Oh, yeah. I think in reality that won't include me going forwards probably realistically but I, I would love it if someone with the right intentions would would take it over or if you know one of my co-founders could in time do that there's lots of things to work through to get there but but essentially we've put it on ice right now mm. is where we are how did it feel um pretty devastating in some ways and th- and that was really around the team like I said we had built a brilliant team and you're you're responsible for for a lot of people you know so that was very very tough i had one particular day where i was coming back from a conference and uh, i think i'd had the real i was on a talk on a stage talking about Preska and i also wasn't feeling great which didn't help my head state but 
I, I think I had the realization that day of, oh gosh, I think, I think this is going to happen, and I was, yeah, I was literally in floods of tears. Like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's really, it's it has been up and down. I feel very proud now, really, really proud. I'm at a point where now I can take all the positives, whereas before it was, <laughs> you know, predominantly struggling with some of the negatives and the feeling of failure and all those kind of things. Mm. I guess finally, how did you know when? Or was it just amalgamation of things? Or Do you know what? The, the first kind of signal that I, that I thought, oh, this could be really rocky, was in, it was maybe October, November. October, I think, something like that. And and I was speaking to a guy who basically said, look, I don't want to scare you, but the cycle industry is about to be on its knees. And he, he was speaking from a point of knowing, and I talk about the kind of clothing specifically here, but he knew all the big clothing companies were essentially saying, everyone is sitting on so much stock. Look what's happening with the energy crisis coming down the line, with the cost of living, the consumer confidence. There's a storm coming. There's a storm of ruin and it's going to be really rough. So at that point, I think we realized, okay, and all the feedback from investors was, we love what you do, genuinely love what you do, but now is not the right time for us, thanks very much. So I suppose once, once we knew the kind of the big investment was, was off the table, then that gave us a challenge, a cash flow challenge. And then coming into Christmas, our sales were a lot down compared to where they should have been. And this year we were doing a lot more kind of advertising. We had way more stock. We had a bigger range, much better range. The brand was way stronger. The community was double the size. So, you know, in normal times that would have translated to a really brilliant Christmas, but it was actually, the sales were lower than the year before. We were then at a point in kind of early January going, look, is there a way that we can carry on purely from the kind of cash flow perspective? We'd already laid off half the team, which we did in November, which was brutal. And just all the indicators were going the wrong way, mm. sadly. You know, I, I, I wish it hadn't been the case, but it was pretty clear. Um, yeah. and, and and perhaps that day of tears <laughs> running down my face was <laughs> was because I, I had that realisation, like, we're done. Mm. This is it. Um, so, yeah, that that's... Um, it wasn't necessarily one specific thing. It was a, uh, all the facts together mm. and then a realisation, okay, we can't, we can't make it out of this. Thank you, Rob. And thank you for being so candid. And um, I think I've got huge respect for the way that you seem to be dealing with this and with the way that you've spoken about it as well, with such an open nature. And I think we do know that others are going through the same kind of things at the moment um, in many different industries as well. So hopefully your story has helped others. Thank you both so much for being such a positive influence on us in the cycling industry. And um, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Shelley. Thank you. Nice to talk to you both.